Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, uh, the green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today I'll be talking to Lauren Ornelas, who's the founder and executive director, or former executive director, excuse me, of the Food Empowerment Project. Um, yeah, she has spent decades in the animal rights movement, um, been involved with a variety of other social justice causes, um, and we talked today about why our food just why our food choices matter, um, and also questions about farm worker justice and racial justice in the food system, and how colonization impacted what people eat and food access in communities of color, and a lot of questions about food that your typical um, vegan or animal rights organization isn't necessarily foregrounding, um, but that through Food Empowerment Project, Lauren has really tried to. Um, I think make a connection between issues of animal rights and issues of human rights. Human rights. Yeah, I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, one more thing to add before we get started. Uh, as regular listeners may know, uh, I host a book club uh, for Patreon subscribers to the podcast at seven dollars a month or more. Um, but if you are curious to attend a book club meeting um, but don't know that you want to. Uh, commit to supporting this podcast on Patreon yet, um, now you can. So you can sign up, and there's a link in the episode description. Uh, I have a weekly free email list where basically just once a week I send out the new episode uh, of the podcast for that week. Um, if you sign up for that email list, uh, you can just let me know, and you can come to a uh, one book club meeting uh, at no charge without having to sign up or anything, um, just to see what it's like. Our next two meetings, I think I'm pretty excited about. Uh, the next one is Tuesday, April 26th, uh, to discuss Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, obviously a, a classic in the environmental movement that I have never actually read, so I'm excited to rectify that and, and discuss it and, and why it may have been so influential. Um, and then in May, Tuesday, May 31st, We'll be talking about N.K. Jemisin's um, The Fifth Season, which is a, a fantasy novel about, about a world with a, a, a change, dramatically changing climate um, that was, was recently chosen by Esquire as the best fantasy novel of all time. It, it won a bunch of awards, um, and I also haven't read it yet, so I'm excited to read and discuss with all of you. Again, if, if you want to join either of those book club meetings. If you want to join both, the way to do that is to sign up on Patreon for just a monthly payment to help keep this podcast running. You'll get early access to episodes as well um, at patreon.com slash storytelling pod. Uh, but if you want to just try one of those out without any uh, long-term commitment, um, you can just, well, there's no long-term commitment with Patreon either because it's a monthly fee, but uh, with, with no monetary commitment at all, um, you can just sign up in the link uh, for the weekly newsletter. Okay, on to the interview with Lauren Ornella. Hi, I'm here with Lauren Ornelas, the founder of Food Empowerment Project. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, yeah, there's... There's a lot I want to get into. I know you've had a, a long, um, a long career in, in animal rights and, and social justice organizing, um, but 
maybe just start with uh, telling us a little bit about what is the Food Empowerment Project and, and why did you found it? Sure. Um, we are a vegan food justice organization and our overall to help connect issues um, in the food realm and trying to give people tools to help create positive change in the world. So we work on promoting veganism for the animals, um, but recognizing that by promoting veganism, we are encouraging more people to eat fruits and vegetables. And so we have an obligation to advocate along with farm workers for their rights. We also work on lack of access to healthy foods in black and brown communities. And we're trying to get people not to buy what's sourced from places where slavery and child labor are the most prevalent. So I, I basically started it because a lot of these are, you know, as a Hikonix, um, a lot of these issues impacted my lived experiences and, you know, knew that I couldn't be the only one that cared about human rights and animal rights and, and wanted to figure out ways we could show the connections in the two and help make a difference. Yeah. Would you like to uh, talk about some of the personal experiences that led you to be interested in food justice? Sure. So I grew up in Texas. Um, I okay. moved, I live in California now, but I grew up in Texas. And, you know, I grew up seeing cows in the fields all of the time. And my parents got divorced when I was really young. And my mom raised my sisters and I by herself. And I think that, you know, being taken to different places for people to take care of me, I, you know, longed to be with my mom and my sisters. And so when I would see the cows in the fields, I would just imagine how hard it would be for that mother cow to not have her baby come back or the baby cow not to have her mom come back. And I went vegetarian. I was vegetarian in elementary school. Um, I remember being in line at the cafeteria and the lunch woman asking me, you know, did I want meat on my enchiladas? And I was like, no. And she was like, are you a vegetarian? And I was like, I do not take care of sick dogs and cats. I am not, you know, I just knew <laughs> I never heard the word vegetarian. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Texas in the seventies. Mm -hmm. So, um, it wasn't until I was in high school that I finally went vegan in 1988, but I was also raised with an understanding of the great boycott, you know, that was taking place because being Hikonix, you know, I, was raised with an understanding of the plight of, of my people and, you know, that a lot of us are farm workers. And so um, that very much became important to me from an early age. Um, and I wanted that to be part of Food Empowerment Project. Mm -hmm. Finally, you know, I, as somebody who went vegetarian at such a young age, I wasn't able to stick with it. My family didn't have a lot of money. And so I had to eat what people gave us. And that was really hard for me. And so you know, we work on lack of access to healthy foods in black and brown communities, although we know indigenous communities are impacted as well. We haven't had the privilege of working in one yet, but, you know, I knew what it was like to not be able to eat my ethics. And um, so that that also was, became a, a focal point of our work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the goals I have with this podcast is to bring in, um, you know, conversations around uh, human-oriented justice projects um, and connect them with with uh, projects related to other animals. And I think your organization and your career show show a very important example of how that can be done. Um, and I'm curious how that's been uh, received. Like you, you've worked with, I guess, more conventional animal rights groups before. Um, how how do your efforts and interest in issues like farm worker rights or 
food access or colonization or racial justice? How is that all um, received in, in the vegan and animal rights community? That's a great question. Um, I would say that, you know, I, before I started Food Empowerment Project, I was running an organization that was, it's called Viva. They were based in England and I ran the USA chapter. And my boss in England was completely comfortable with me talking about farm worker justice issues. She was very fine with me starting because I learned about what was happening with chocolate in the early 2000s. And she was comfortable with me talking about it within our work. Mm-hmm. But the U.S.-based movement was not as welcoming. Mm-hmm. And I received a lot of pushback. I was told I was hurting the animals when I talked about these other issues, that I should just keep the focus on um, non-human animals. And that was really hard for me because I just felt like it was all very much connected. I couldn't see how it was any different. If I went vegan because I didn't want any harm to come to non-human animals, why wouldn't I feel the same way about the farm workers? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't I feel the same about, you know, people in Western Africa harvesting cacao? Um, so I, luckily for me, in 2006, I spoke at the World Social Forum in Caracas, Venezuela, where I saw a lot of activists who looked like me, um, who cared about a variety of issues, immigration, environmental issues, water privatization. And that's kind of where the Seed of Food Empowerment Project came from. Um, and so I would say that in the very, very beginning of the ocean, and still to some extent to now, I mean, we certainly are smaller than other organizations that are much, much younger than us. Um, because we don't get that type of support that maybe just a hundred percent animal rights and you know anti-factory farming organization might get. But the younger generation is phenomenal. Like they do not need us to explain how these issues are connected. They get it instinctively. It's like something something that they they we don't need to take them to explain why veganism and farm worker justice is connected. It's like they get it. So I would say that. We're still pretty small because um, there's, you know, the need for understanding in that realm. But when it comes to where we're at now from 15 years ago when I started the organization, it's a much different viewpoint, I guess. Mm -hmm. And kind of the flip side of that question is um, when you do work with uh, either with farm workers or with other more human-oriented groups, um, but, you know, you bring, you bring vegan food to the meeting or, or try to introduce uh, some, some framework around uh, non-human animals as well. Uh, how has that, how have those conversations gone? They've gone incredible. Um, and I think that more than anything, the beautiful part of it is that people see a different way of being vegan. And some of me mm. says that that's because I'm a woman of color you know, running a vegan organization and founded by me, which is a lot different than some of the other vegan organizations there. But a lot of what I've heard is, you know, people telling me I've never heard a vegan talk about farm workers like this before, mm-hmm. you know, that they just never thought that we would be talking about it with the same passion, that we would talk about it in terms of, you know, part of the same struggle. Um, and our work on lack of access to healthy foods in black and brown communities has been, you know, joy, excitement, interest, you know, but of course the communities that we work in, there's the problem of just struggling to be able to access that food. They're interested in it. Um, they, they want to embrace it, but they have a lot of 
issues accessing the healthy foods. Maybe it's not available in the community. Um, but we also have some people who struggle with the fact that they're on, you know, different medications, that they have to be more careful about the types of foods that they eat. So, you know, these are, these are things that are more complicated. And what, one of the reasons why we, we don't go along with the, it's easy to go vegan. These are complicated issues mm -hmm. for people with less privilege. What does it look like trying to working in um, black and brown communities to increase food access? Like what concretely is, is Food Empowerment Project doing? It is really, you know, that and the farm worker work we do is some of the most beautiful work that we do because we are with community. Mm -hmm. um, and we get to, at least, you know, we get to celebrate community. And so our work, primarily what we do initially is we do an assessment on the availability of, you know, fresh frozen canned fruits and vegetables, meat and dairy alternatives, as well as other things like what's the signage in the windows, you know, so we survey places that sell food except for restaurants and fast food. So liquor stores, convenience stores, gas stations, and of course, grocery stores. And after we do that, we put out a report, share with community groups to help their funding um, and in policymakers as well. And then we follow up and we do focus groups in the community because we know that too many times well-intentioned NGOs or government officials will start making decisions for the community and, and the power um, and the solutions lie in the community. So we do focus groups in the community where we actually pay people $50 for their time because their knowledge is valuable. It's you know, something that deserves compensation. We can't just take from a community without giving back and acknowledging the importance and value of what they're sharing. We also feed vegan meal. Um, and um, then we put out our reports. You know, we ask them questions, solutions, barriers that they experience. We put out the focus group reports, again, sharing it with community members for free, you know, as many reports as they need to support their work, as well as policymakers. And then in the community that we've been working in, two of the things came to, well, one of the things that came to the forefront was that many in the community had not heard of worker-owned cooperatives. And so we realized, and, but everybody once explained was 100% interested in it. So we went back into the community and we did three meetings um, just focusing on what worker-owned cooperatives are with the help of Mandela Cooperative in Oakland, California came in. And we did three community meetings to really get them interested in worker-owned cooperatives. And we're excited that there may be one getting off the ground soon. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So, you know, and just, you know, talking about it and, you know, we're working in other communities right now, but we still have our foot in Vallejo. We know it's a, a, a sincerely impacted community and um, we're still trying to, you know, figure out ways to work on the issues, still working with community groups as well. And uh, yeah, if, I guess if you say that the people you talked to, aren't immediately familiar with worker-owned cooperatives, it might be worthwhile briefly defining them in this conversation as well. Yeah, absolutely. So worker-owned cooperatives are where the workers own the store. They own the property, not the property, but they own the business. They own the decision-making power. So they're the ones who are going to decide where their profits go. They're going to make the decisions on what they want to give back to the community. And their goal is to serve that community. And and they live in the community, so they're vested in the community. So instead of money going back to, say, Walmart in Arkansas, the money is going to stay in that community. And it's going to also create, you know, entrepreneurship. It's going to help people learn all sorts of different skills if they stay there or not. But it's a powerful way 
um, to, I believe, build community and help those people who lack access to healthy foods. Um, Mandela Grocery does a great job of, you know, deciding EBT and senior discounts and the beginning of the, the business's um, existence. They um, kept on putting the money back into the business and then eventually they were able to have some profit and, and you know, enjoy uh, the benefits of their hard labor. But there's also an ethics behind it in terms of, of working with other worker-owned cooperatives and, and standing for worker justice as well. Yeah, you mentioned the other um, the other project that's been been great in increasing community is uh, working with with farm workers. Is this the um, I know you're involved with providing uh, school supplies to the children of farm workers? We are. We um, work with a few different farm farm worker organizations. One of the things we initially did is we helped overturn a regulation in California that required um, farm workers living in labor camps um, that when the picking season was over, that they had to move 50 miles away from that labor camp, which greatly impacted the education of the children because the children, like the labor camp near us was open May through November. So the kids weren't allowed to go into schools until maybe May, and then they were forced to leave in November. And so by overturning this regulation, we allow the students to be able to stay um, for the entire year. Um, mm. We also work with um, an organization called North Bay Jobs with Justice, where we're working on some issues up in Sonoma County, where some of the winery workers are. And then, yes, we do a school supply drive every Every year for the children of workers, um, we don't see it as an act of, ch of charity. We see it more as helping to right an injustice that's taking place um, to farm workers and our ability to try to help their children succeed. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that stands out to me is just the, the broad array of initiatives that Food Empowerment Project is involved in. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that you were small, but based on the list of things you are doing and have done, uh, it's impressive that a small team is pulling this off. Um, I think what, yeah, another thing I want to highlight is these cookbooks uh, and recipes you've been putting out um, for vegan Mexican food, vegan Filipino food, and vegan Lao food. Um, how, yeah, what's been the response to these, and how do you decide to reach out to these communities? Sure. So, you know, as a Hikonix, it was really important for me to show our community one thing that a lot of our foods um, were not based in animal products um, traditionally. Um, and so I wanted to share delicious vegan foods that were our comfort foods without animal suffering. And so it was really important to me to reach out to our community and also show others um, how delicious our foods are. And so we created veganmexicanfood.com and that website, the way we do our recipes, it's kind of community. Like some of the recipes are my mom's or my brother-in-law's, but also other um, Mexicans um, who contributed their vegan recipes. And so it's not like by anybody famous, it's just home cooks. Then um, we have it in English and Spanish and then the booklet as well. And so it was really, you know, celebrating my culture, my people and our foods. Um, one of my uh, former colleagues is Filipinx and I said the same thing for her, let's celebrate your culture and your people. So that's where um, vegan Filipino food came from. And vegan Lao food is because our very first intern and our longest serving board member who just left us um, is Lao. 
And so the same thing, we just want to celebrate all of our community, share our food, share our cultures with other people. And so it's really a celebration. Um, and I think just to dig a little deep, a little bit further, you know, in terms of vegan Mexican food, you know, another big part of it is, you know, looking at the role that colonization has played in our diets and in our lives, in the sense that a lot of people see Mexican food being a lot of cheese and dairy, whereas, you know, Columbus actually brought the cows over, literally brought the cows over to our, our continents. And for a lot of us who, you know, are indigenous to the Americas, um, it, it's not really normal for us to consume cow milk. And in fact, I would say it's kind of unusual for any, any human to consume the milk of another species. But even more so when you look at the indigenous aspects, you look at the fact that we, a lot of people call, use the term lactose intolerant, and we find that to be you know, not accurate. It's a little bit, it's kind of putting the onus on black and brown and indigenous people as in wrong with us when in fact, for some of us, colonization is what brought dairy to us. And so it doesn't, it makes sense that we would be what we call lactose normal, that mm. we do not digest the cow of another species because it, it's the legacy of colonization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I noticed too, people can check out, I'll provide a link that you uh, just set up a new website around around the dairy industry. Um, I can direct people to that to learn more. So you're you're asking people to be super conscious consumers of of food, right? Not just um, animal products, uh, you know, meat, uh, milk, eggs, honey, but also only buying particular brands of, of chocolate that you've you've highlighted as having acceptable worker practices. Um, there's information on your site about bananas, um, which are generally you know, produced often with very poor uh, worker conditions. And um, yeah, just sort of lots of, there's lots of advice on your website and from your organization about paying attention to which foods are ethically produced with respect to the human workers, the other animals and the environment. Um, I think this is all super useful information uh, but someone might sort of step back and say, uh, I'm just one person or, you know, these are big systems. Why, why are our individual choices important? You know, it's funny because I, I go for hikes. They're going to be like, why are you bringing this up? But I go for hikes on Fridays. And I realized the other day that when I just looked at my own feet, I did a lot better than when I looked at high, how, how, how high I had to go up. Hmm. And I realize it's kind of the same thing with food issues, right? It's like, we, like if we just look at what we can do is going to feel a lot better than looking at how much we have to climb. That we have, my, my belief, my strong belief is that for those of us who have the privilege of eating more than one time a day, for those of us who have the privilege for thinking even about our food choices, we have a responsibility and I want people to not look at these issues and feel overwhelmed. I want them to look at them as opportunities. There's so many things going on in our world today that we have no control over. But when we look at our food choices, we have some control over that. And I don't want to say that's limited to just, you know, voting with our dollar. It goes beyond that. 
we can vote with our dollar. We need to, you know, eat our ethics. We need to make sure that what we're eating agrees with our belief system. But we also need to speak out about those injustices. We need to make sure we take it that step further to show companies that we demand better. And I think that I, like I so much don't want people to feel overwhelmed as much as I want them to look at it like, wow, I have the opportunity to make a difference. I have the opportunity when I go into the grocery store to say, can you, you know, can you carry berries that aren't Driscoll's berries? Because currently there's a farm worker boycott because of how they're being treated. You know, to make a difference, to add their voices. You know, we say our individual choices and our collective voices mm. can make a difference. And I strongly believe that they can. And I feel like we see it time and time again. We just need to 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 use that, um, to take seriously that responsibility that we have. Mm-hmm. And, right, and I think that feeds also into your other work around food access or around... Um, for instance, the, the farm worker policy you mentioned to help keep kids in the school, uh, that, right, that it doesn't have to be either or, individual or collective, that they can actually be mutually supportive of each other. Absolutely. Um, so I want to raise, you contributed to a volume in 2011 uh, called Sister Species, Women, Animals, and Social Justice that was edited by Lisa Kemmerer. Um, and I, I read the piece you wrote for that. And you talked about your experience as uh, an investigator of animal abuse. Um, for so, as, as part of kind of this podcast project, um, I'm I'm hosting a book club with with listeners and, and Patreon supporters of the podcast. And and just last night, the night before I recorded this interview, um, we discussed the novel Barn Eight, which a lot of the main characters are um, these people who have previously worked as undercover investigators and, um, you know, been traveling town to town and, uh, working in, working in farms that they don't think should exist, uh, to be able to figure out what's going on in them. Um, and she, the author of that book, Deb Olin Unferth, really, I think paints a compelling and, and, moving picture of just how difficult such work would be to go into spaces that go against, um, go so deeply against your, your deeply held values um, and, and spend time there looking and, and filming and documenting. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm just wondering if you can talk a little about what your, your life as an investigator was like. Sure. I, you know, just to be clear, I did, I didn't ever work at these places, Mm -hmm. but I did investigate them. And Mm -hmm. I would say that, I mean, nightmares (laughs) are regular, a part of, of doing that work. Um, You know, you really, you know, it's, this is a really good question. And I thank you for asking it because I don't get asked this question a lot. Um, It's very difficult. It's, it's um, overwhelming. It is painful. It is, you know, I know that, you know, certain investigations I would go in and I would have an idea of what, what my goal was, you know, like this, I'm doing this investigation because we need to expose this. And, you know, I was able to get in, get the footage and get out kind of thing. Um, But there were times when, you know, there were injured animals and there were dead animals and there were animals that you saw being completely and utterly disregarded as if they were garbage. 
And there's a helplessness with that. There's when I did an investigation of um, chicken farms in Southern California, the react how many little beings and how many little lives we were talking about and how how it would be possible to to do something to help them. You know, I collapsed when I left the shed. I just was overwhelmed with the you know, it's like, you know, every, every second, how many of these birds are killed? And how do we ever stop that? You know, how do we ever get people to see these, these beings as sentient, as lovable, or if not lovable, then at least deserving of their own lives. And so I would say, you know, I, a lot of nightmares, um, and just the knowledge that if you could get anybody, just one person to, to look at these images and, and think differently, it was worth it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Getting to that, looking down at your feet rather than up at the peak of the mountain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one One thing you talked about that I found particularly moving was the idea that you often in your investigations would would try to just pick out one individual animal in each space um, to just kind of pay special attention to or or lift up that particular story. Um, Can you talk about how you how you uh, made that decision? Yeah, it was the first investigation um, that I did as part of a campaign. So Eva, we were trying to get grocery stores to stop selling duck meat. And I went into this farm, hopping the fence, um, hopped into the fence in the farm and saw this adorable duckling with their feathers not even out yet, still the yellowy down, and he was just covered in manure. And I looked at their little face and took a picture and just thought, you know, everything that I'm doing right now is for you. Um, Mm. If I can get this footage, get it out and just get people to see you like I see you. I can do this. I can hop back over that fence. I can I can not I can stop shaking, you know. And so, yeah, that was that was when I decided to do that. Because it was this just precious little face. Mm-hmm. I still have the picture on my desk. <laughs> yeah, I, one of the kind of two main reasons that I, I came to call this podcast Storytelling Animals, uh, and the first is just sort of the idea that humans are animals that tell stories, um, but the other is that all the other animals have their stories as well, and for for ethical reasons we have to listen to them and also just to be able to make sense of the ecological crisis we're in, the climate crisis we're in, the, the food system crisis we're in. Um, we have to recognize that all these problems are, you know, public health comes down to this often. Like a lot of these problems are problems of our relations between species. Uh, mm-hmm. And and you can't just, um, you can't just look at, at non-humans but you can't just look at humans um exactly to to really even understand what's going on let alone respond to it in a in an ethical way um exactly. a lot of the uh 
people I've interviewed on the podcast so far have been people who um, I think like writing is a primarily part of primary part of what they do, either um, through journalism or academia or or even fiction. Um, and one of the you know I'm a a journalist as well. I've, I've written a lot, and um, I guess one of the the beliefs I have is, is that right telling these stories either you know journalistic stories or fictional stories or or via tv or movies or, or whatever is is an important way to um to raise awareness to energize people um but also <laughs> you know if if there were only journalists that wouldn't be good like we need we need actual activists um in some sense actually doing things uh so i wonder I'm curious, just in your experience as someone who's been involved in various animal rights groups in the past and starting your own and, and being involved in farm worker justice and racial justice, um, are there uh, books or articles or movies or just does does media in that sense um, play a role or, or influence at all or or even inspire your activism or help it? Or is that something you think about? Absolutely. I mean, I... All of the above, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I would say that I know that the film that I saw when I was 17, the animals film gave me the best overall perspective of animal rights. It's from England, but it was what I saw when I was in high school. What and was it called? The animals film. The animals film. And it's where I first saw how they cut the, the beaks off the tips of the chickens um, so that they don't peck each other in the crowded sheds and I will never forget it's burned in my brain forever the little bleeding tip of the beak of the the baby chick but it's also documentaries that got me learning about what's happening in western Africa for chocolate you know I mean that is where we've gotten all of our information and I was lucky enough to befriend uh, one of the filmmakers um, who since passed away but he was my mentor on the issue and he's really who helped guide um, our chocolate list and, and why our criteria is what it is for our chocolate list. Um, so, yeah, my, my husband is actually an author. And so, you know, I've seen the power of, of words, um, of getting people to sit with ideas on their own terms and being able to, to think about these things on their own and how powerful that can be. Um, definitely writing. I'm, I, I read a lot. <laughs> I've had to stop reading so many, um, nonfiction <laughs> because <laughs> the world around me right now is too heavy. Um, but you know, I mean, I feel enriched by reading, you know, I learned about Steve Biko, you know, reading Mandela, you know, reading people like that and reading about, you know, other social justice issues. You know, I got involved in the anti-apartheid movement when I was in high school. And a lot of my understanding of using food as a tool for social change came from a book called Shopping for a Better World back in the 80s. And that's a lot of the formative basis for Food Empowerment Project is us, you know, recognizing the different things we support or don't support um, by, by what we buy and, and the power of our food choices. So, you know, definitely finding, you know, inspiration, ideas, creativity 
from reading and learning. Um, but both books and documentaries have played a powerful role in my life as well as Food Empowerment Project. You've mentioned your your chocolate campaign and chocolate list, and I've mentioned it a couple times briefly. Um, but just because it's come up, do you want to maybe tell us a little more about what is happening in, in West Africa? Sure. It's actually Western Africa and Brazil now. It was primarily Western Africa, and then a few years ago, Brazil has popped on the list of child labor and slavery prevalency. Um, but basically, and I'll stick to Western Africa, but primarily you have a lot of um, children who come from very poor countries, Burkina Faso and Mali, to, for example, um, near Ghana and the Ivory Coast, where they are maybe they go into work in the cacao industry, their families thinking that they're going to be able to send back money, their families thinking that they may ever see them again. Um, you have children who are maybe sold into it by a family member, or you also have children who are stolen from marketplaces and trafficked hundreds of miles from home and are working to harvest cacao, which is what, what is used to make chocolate. You have kids who are beaten, who are, if they don't fast enough, if they, you know, an eight-year-old trying to carry a hundred-pound bag of cacao is often beaten. Sometimes they're locked in at night. Um, a recent lawsuit against some of the big chocolate manufacturers revealed that some of the formerly enslaved people talked about how their feet were cut open to prevent them from running away. Um, we're talking about horrific instances of slavery and forced labor, all for a luxury called chocolate. Mm -hmm. So I uh, so have, you know, we, we, there are quotes from farmers in Brazil who are saying, you know, if, if I didn't have this noose around my neck, my child would be in school, but instead I need their help harvesting the cacao. So you have farmers who are not being paid living income and corporations who are benefiting profusely off the work of these people. And so we've created a chocolate list that doesn't go based on certifications because there have been problems found with each and every certification that exists. Um, we go on the prevalence of child labor, child labor and slavery being in those areas, and that creates our list of chocolates that we do and do not recommend, and we update the list every month. They have to make at least one vegan chocolate to make our list, and um, we also have, it's an app, so it's a free app that you can download as well on the iPhone or the Android, and again, we update it every month, um, and people send us companies that they want us to look into, and most companies make vegan and non-vegan chocolates, but chocolate and dark chocolate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like I've only scratched the surface of, of what your organization does. There's there's more educational materials on other issues on your website. You did, a, I think, a whole virtual conference on seafood and the fishing industry um, last year. Do, do you ever feel personally or organizationally stretched thin? And, and how do you grapple with that? It's <laughs> such a great question. Uh, I mentioned to you before we started on the call that I'm not the executive director anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's because I, I constantly have ideas on things that I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I could stretch everybody thin. You know, when, um, when I stepped down as the executive director, we were a team of two. Now we're a team of six. Um, we're currently looking for an executive director, but like we always need somebody to hold me back because I'm like, we should do this and this and this, and that's not good for anybody's self-care, right? Uh -huh. So um, no, we, 
we do as much as because I had a great colleague who was always like, that sounds good. We should do that. You know, and now I'm like, okay, it was a lot for, you know, just a couple people to do. So but we have a great group of volunteers, which really helps. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, mentally, I, I think that what happens for me is I see an injustice and my immediate reaction is I need to do something about this now. And my mind comes up with all these solutions. And then I don't have the the tools, you know, like I don't have, we don't have enough funding. We don't have enough people for us to do it all. Right. You know, I can't split myself into too many different people either. Um, and so I think that's the hardest part for me is feeling restricted and knowing that, you know, there's just so many communities, um, that we learn about doing the farm worker justice work that we do that I just am wanting to, to make an impact on. But I think that, yeah, I mean, I do stretch myself too thin, but I'm thankful that I have people now that that are healthy to not do that. Because if nothing else, I don't want that for the people that I work with. It's not fair to them. And so that's been um, a process for me to, you know, really, really uh, learn self-care uh, for myself or try to learn it. And also really, really supporting the people who I work with, the amazing people I work with to make sure that they take care of themselves too. Yeah. And maybe on a related note, um, you've, what's come across in this conversation and then the research I did beforehand is that you've been involved in, in so many different types of, of activism and organizing work from anti-apartheid high school to the investigations you were doing to your work with Food Empowerment Project, which ranges from cookbooks to, uh, you know, the chocolate list to a legislative action. So what um, what have you learned about from all this about what what types of of actions and, and activism work best or, or which you at least prefer to be involved in? Yeah, I realized um, that I prefer corporate campaigning. Mm. Um, I did work in California on passing the law. Like it was three, four, three organizations that worked to pass the law in California to ban the sale and production of foie gras. Um, and I also worked to stop many, many times uh, Adidas from trying to overturn California law allow the sale of kangaroo skins. And with both of those, I realized that it was incredible to get these changes made, but that there's so much politics involved that a lot of times it's not about the issues it, or even what their constituents want. It might be more a matter of their relationship with other policymakers mm. or who's lobbying them or giving them donations. And I realized I don't do well with that, <laughs> um, that, that I'm better trying to create change by using the good of people, honestly, the good of people to show corporations that we demand better for non-human and human animals alike, um, that we want better and that corporations need to listen and make changes and that those changes can sweep the entire corporation um, and that is more to my liking because it's dealing with the power of people. Mm -hmm. What are you, do you have any, uh, stories or successes you're either particularly proud of or, 
or that are particularly educational? Yeah, I mean, you know, I did these investigations of duck farms and we were successful in getting Trader Joe's to stop selling all duck meat Mm -hmm. and Pier 1 Imports for amusing feathers and all of their products. Nice. Um, So, yeah, I very much believe that, you know, and again, you see all these online petitions and stuff and even something like that, although we, we were out on the street, these were before the online petitions, but they're made. Maybe not always, but the fact that we can get little by little changes are important. And mm-hmm. we definitely need to celebrate those. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what advice would you have to uh, anyone listening who, who's maybe hoping to start doing a little more advocacy for, for human and or non-humans? There's so much that you can do and there are different levels of, of your involvement from, you know, just thinking more and learning more. I mean, that in and of itself is a lot that more people do. And then taking it that step further and taking a look at your, you know, I, I used to work on um, electronics and um, e-waste being dumped overseas to developing countries and um, trying to get companies to not use such toxic materials in the computers. And when I look at the food issue, I look at how many times that we have the ability to make a change with food because you may buy a computer once every few years And you can definitely reach out to the companies and let them know what you think and how you feel. But with food, for those of us who have privilege, we have that opportunity every day. And so using those opportunities as responsibilities to talk to the people at your grocery store, talk to other people about what you're learning, speak out to the corporations, um, rather it be um, getting your, seeing if your grocery store can sell more equal exchange bananas um, that are some of the few that we recommend to shopping maybe at the co-ops instead of the big corporate grocery stores. If you can afford it, maybe they're a little bit more expensive, maybe buying organic, even though it doesn't mean the farm workers are treated better. It does mean that they're not being doused with agricultural chemicals. So seeing all the little things you could do to the bigger things that you can do, getting more involved, finding community organizations, seeing if there's lack of access to healthy food in your community. And if there's any community groups that you can support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that I would say in my own experience that I, I became vegan uh, partly out of, you know, largely out of, out of concern for, for animal treatment and exploitation, but really once, once uh, animal flesh and animal products were off my plate, it kind of created more mental space to, uh, you know, to think more deeply about the industry. And, and really it wasn't kind of until after I became vegan that I kind of wanted to start being more involved politically or uh, really was able to have a deeper analysis of the industry. Um, It's like it subconsciously eating it was kind of preventing me from thinking clearly about it. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. I can totally see that because you don't want to listen. You don't want to be Mm open-minded when you're contributing to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, the kind of last, last question or two to end on um, your, your website or the food empowerment project website um, says it's at 15 years. Is that, is that correct? Yes. (laughs) 
for 15 years. Um, I didn't start doing it full time until 2013. Um, so in the very beginning, we were just all volunteers. In 2013, mm-hmm. we had a generous donor offer to pay me $1,000 a month so I could help get FEP off the ground. And my husband and I moved to a dumpy place. <laughs> and, then we, and then we flourished. In 2016, we hired our first full-time employee. So what's, uh, what's next? Or what, what are the, the plans for, for this year? Well, this year we'll be turning our Vegan Lao website into a booklet. So we'll be getting one more vegan booklet out there. Um, And we are doing our anti-dairy billboards um, that we have right now in Madison, Wisconsin, and in Oakland, California, that says got colonization and the got milk type of um, Mm -hmm. uh, style. Um, So really getting out there with the anti-dairy message and making sure that we're reaching people in a way to help them understand what isn't talked about very much, the legacy that colonization still has. And that, you know, many people may not even, you know, I talked to to students just last week, I spoke to students and they never, they're predominantly Latinx and who never really thought about the colonization aspect of why it was hard for their bodies to digest milk, cow milk. You know, and so I think that we we really want to be doing more education on that and, and getting that information there. Um, we are still going to be doing we're doing our school supply drive again this year. Um, the demand is even greater, um, but we will do our best to, to meet what we can to, to help those superstars, the children of farm workers to succeed. We have our fight for the ocean again with COVID being hopefully um, less pervasive. I don't even know how to call it anymore. It's not gone. Um, but we hope to go back out and do ocean cleanups again, um, to do our, to help the oceans. Cool. Um, and one last question that I, I meant to ask earlier, but, um, in all your work with, with farm workers in particular, um, do, do you ever end up having conversation with, with farm workers who work in the, in animal industries? We primarily work on produce workers and that the reason for that is because I feel like it would be hypocritical to work on rights of slaughterhouse workers when we do not think for slaughterhouses are good for anybody, Mm -hmm. human or non-animals. And so it seems disingenuous, but that's not to say that we don't very strongly um, want slaughterhouse workers to be treated fairly um, in we absolutely recognize the horrific position that they're in um, for their soul, for their body and everything. Cause nobody decides they want to be a slaughterhouse worker when they grow up. And that's why their turnover rates are so high. But we feel that as a vegan organization, we also want to make sure that vegans aren't just looking ways to tell other people, you know, here's another reason to go vegan look at the slaughterhouse workers, and then also don't look at how the farm workers are treated who pick their food. Mm. So we feel like it makes more cons- more sense consistently for us to continue to talk about, you know, veganism and the food that we eat and just acknowledge that it isn't exactly cruelty-free given how farm workers are treated in this country. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and there's maybe an analogy to people in the climate movement being concerned about, you know, our, our solar jobs, good jobs, union paying jobs. Um, right. It, you know, if we're trying to build a vegan food system, that means a food system free of exploitation, 
should actually be free of exploitation. Exactly. And for my old job also worked on the solar industry. So again, with the solar industry, making sure that if it's clean here, is it clean where it's being manufactured? Mm. You know, is this toxic waste and impacting people in China? Well, that's not good either. You know, like there needs to be this holistic understanding that, you know, all of our actions impact people locally and globally. And I feel we have a responsibility, especially those with us with more, more privilege, have a responsibility to others. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, no, but if you want a little story, I could tell you another little story. Let's have a story. <laughs> well, it's about um, my bunny Benito. Okay. Benito is named after Benito Juarez, um, who is the first indigenous president of Mexico. And I, I like to tell his story because what you were mentioning earlier about human stories and, and non-human animal stories, um, my husband and I found Benito and his mate on the streets in downtown San Jose. Okay. More than likely, they were disregarded as ex-Easter, you know, gifts. Mm -hmm. And they were filthy. And um, we had a hard time getting them out um, from where they were. Unfortunately, the little girl died um, of her, uh, actually of her spay when she got fixed. Um, but Benito still lives with us, and he is mischievous and funny, but scared because of his life on the streets. And he also is a special needs bunny. He was born with some health issues that impact his ability, ability to truly be like a bunny would be. And for me, Benito exemplifies why it is that I'm vegan, why it is that we promote veganism, and that's because Benito has a right to his own little life. His, his flesh, without wanting somebody to eat him, his fur, without somebody wanting to wear him, and his eyes, without somebody wanting to test products in him. That he's an individual that a lot of people don't get to know, like they don't get to know chickens or fish or sharks, who are my favorite animals. And so I think these stories are incredibly important when looking at human and non-human issues, because not everybody knows the experiences of that mother working two jobs in Vallejo, struggling to make ends meet, whose grocery store closes at nine o'clock and the only thing that's open is a fast food restaurant. And that's what she takes home to her kids at night. Nobody's going to know these stories of people who only have the food that they eat come out of a microwave. Nobody's going to know what's happening to women um, who are sexually harassed either in the restaurants, the fast food, or in the fields unless we hear these stories and understand and gain empathy for them all. So I really thank you for making sure that these stories are told and heard in all these different capacities. And I thank you for, for working to change a lot of these stories. Thank you. Um, so yeah, this was uh, Laura Nornelas, the founder of Food Empowerment Project. Um, this was a, a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for, for being here. Thank you for having me and thanks for allowing me to share. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to 
share it with your friends on social media, text it to your family if they think you might like it, uh, send it to your activist group, group me or signal chat. Um, and yeah. And as I mentioned if, earlier, uh, if you want to join the book club, our next two books are going to be silent spring and, uh, the fifth season. Um, Try one of those out. Just just join our uh, free email list. The link is in the description. All right. Thanks so much.